you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And this uh, particular passage we're going to be in here in today is a, a difficult one, uh, a tough one. And you might wonder, uh, for someone who had to kind of pull a sermon out of nowhere, why would I go to a difficult text? It's only because I've been trying to spend time in this passage figuring it out. All right? Some passages are uh, known to be difficult passages, right? We, we know them to be tough passages. We're not sure exactly what they mean. Then others, we just kind of assume we know what they mean, but we don't necessarily know what they mean. And when you're reading through it in your devotional time or what have you, you might just kind of look at it and go, huh, yeah, I think I vaguely kind of know what that means, and then you just keep going. It's a, it's a brief passage. It's a short passage. It includes a parable that makes it even harder. Um, but you've, you've heard it probably explained some different ways. And so I don't have a fancy introduction other than to say, let's try to understand it, and let's try to see what it means today. And that's the advantage, I think, of walking through a passage together, is we can unpack some of the more difficult ones. But let's pray, and then we'll look at the passage together. Father, we need your help. Uh, Left to our own devices, we will not interpret Scripture correctly. We will mangle it. We will just uh, interpret it according to our own desires or whatever. But we want to surrender ourselves to you. We pray that you would give us eyes to see what you have here. And we ask that you would give us the strength and the grace to live according to it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I ask you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. Now I want you to go to chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. What I want to do is read this passage... And perhaps you're like, what's so hard about this passage? Or maybe you're like me and you read it right away. You're like, I don't get it. But let, we'll read it and then we'll give some background to try to unpack it. So these are people responding to Jesus, saying to him these things. Verse 33, Luke chapter 5, verse 33. Uh, it's going to be helpful for you to be in the text, so nose in the text, maybe even finger on the text this morning. Luke chapter 5, verse 33, it says, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, Jesus, your disciples, eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, And then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old, and and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. You lost? Well, let me explain what it means on the surface, and then we, I can talk about what some people have done with it, and then I think as we move through it, we might see what we're supposed to actually do with it. On the surface, you have 
people that are ticked that Jesus' disciples aren't doing what the rest of them are doing. The rest of them fast often. Fasting is a spiritual practice. It's a, it's a, it's a devotional practice. It's worshipful to fast. Now, some people fast today for health benefits, to lose weight, intermittent fasting, find a window where you don't eat. Sure, it has those benefits, but that's not when the Bible talks about fasting. It's about giving up food for a focus on God. Giving up food for a focus on God. That's what fasting is for. So we don't ever want to enter fasting. Oh, this is a spiritual time. I'm going to fast for the Lord. But really, the reason why you're doing it is because you want to make weight you know, uh, for your wrestling team or you want to fit into a certain outfit. That's not what fasting is for. And they understood that. They fasted for religious reasons. In the Old Testament, fasting was only prescribed once a year in Yom Kippur. But over time, they said, hey, we should do this more often. And so by the time of Jesus' day, they were fasting, I think it was Tuesdays and Thursdays. And they would all kind of do it together so the markets would shut down. The butcher doesn't have to chop meat that day, right? No one's making soup that day because everybody's fasting. If everyone does it kind of on the same page, you know, we don't have to... uh, we can, we can just do it all together, and then on the next day, all the, uh, the kitchens are open and everything like that. But they noticed Jesus' disciples, and Jesus' disciples, if you look at the previous paragraph, they're eating with, not, not only are they eating, but they're eating with sinners and tax collectors. Like they're, everyone else is fasting. Oh, Lord, I'm fasting for you. And then they look over, and Jesus' disciples are like, you know, so it takes them off, right? And you know when you're hangry? That doesn't really help. And so they see uh, Jesus' disciples. They're not cool with it. And so they ask him, hey, what's up with your disciples? Uh, John the baptizer, his disciples, they fast. And if you look at the Pharisees, the religious experts that read the Old Testament, they memorize the Old Testament, they teach the Old Testament, they're like really hardcore. And I mean, they're fasting. And then you're supposed to be Jesus. You're supposed to have like the best disciples ever, right? But they don't even fast. So that's the problem, and that's what starts the whole conversation. Then Jesus, he uses an imagery and then a parable, and the imagery is, uh, why would wedding guests fast for the bridegroom if the bridegroom is with them? We're going to get back to that, but he's saying, imagine a wedding, and in the wedding, everyone is waiting for the bridegroom to get there. And some of you have been to weddings, and while the bride and groom are off taking pictures, you're sitting there starving to death, eating Jordan almonds, right? And you can't wait to see them. When the couple comes in, everyone's happy and clapping, and the couple thinks it's for them. It's because we finally get to eat, right? And so in this ancient scenario, the bridegroom would be missing, and everyone's waiting for the groom, and no one's going to start partying until the groom gets there. When the groom gets there, now it's time to feast. And Jesus is saying, well, I'm the groom and I'm here. What are you starving yourself for? I'm here. Then he gives them a parable, which uses two sort of object lessons. One of them is about garments. Here's what he says. We'll just interpret just the surface level. Not what does he mean by it, but just what is he even talking about? He says in verse 35, each week my font keeps getting smaller, so I don't know what's going on with this ever-changing Bible here. He told them a parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now, we live in a society where oftentimes as soon as you get a hole in a garment, you throw it in the trash. But this was a time where 
it's really better to just patch it than purchase an entire new garment. And it's not that patches look particularly cool, but it's just what you had to do when there was a tear in the garment. Now, what you would do is you would take a piece of cloth that matches the, the garment that has the hole in it. Not in terms of color, not in terms of design or style, but in terms of shrunkness. So if you have an old garment, it's shrunk already. You've, you've, you've worn it, washed it, dried it. Worn it, washed it, dried it. Worn it, washed it, dried it. Versus a new piece of material and the cloth, they just were woven together. It hasn't been through a wash. It hasn't ever been dried. The, 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 it's never shrunk. And the, it didn't tighten up. If you take that patch and put it on the other garment, when you wash it, dry it, the patch is going to shrink and tear itself away from the old garment. That's dumb, right? That's absurd. Nobody would do that. That's crazy. So that's what Jesus is saying. Nobody takes an old garment that needs to get patched up, take a new patch. Now you took that new patch the way Luke says it. This is in every gospel, by the way, except John. Matthew, Mark have this as well. But Luke adds this specific detail that the patch you got was from a new garment, and then you put it on an old garment, both garments are ruined. Now your new garment has a hole in it. Now your old garment got a patch that didn't work. Guess what it still has in it? A hole. You ruined two things because you did something that was totally crazy. Then he uses wineskins. That one's a little harder to understand because, you know, we use bottles and, and all kinds of different flasks and whatnot today. But it's a similar, you know, it's a similar picture. Verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst those old wineskins and it'll be spilled. What will be spilled? The wine. And the skins will be destroyed. So what are you supposed to do then? He says new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So a wineskin is literally a piece of animal skin. It's a leather and as that wine would ferment and expand the bag, that, that, that bag would, you know, in its supple nature, because it's new leather, it would expand and, and stretch with it. But after a while, it's already done its expanding, and now it's kind of dry. It's an old wineskin. If you put new wineskin in that, as the new wine expands, that brittle old wineskin can't hold that fermentation anymore. It breaks. Now you broke the wineskin, and you spilled out the wine. So what should you do with new wine? You put it in new wineskins. Pretty simple. So anybody who's ever patched a piece of clothing would understand that. In their day, everybody would understand that you don't put uh, new wine in something that already has gone through the expansion process because you're going to ruin it. You're going to ruin the wineskin. You're going to lose your wine, and that's terrible. And then his last verse there, we're going to get back to in a little bit, but it's weird. He just says, no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. In other words, wine is one of those things that the older it is, ostensibly, the better it is. Rather than new being better, old is better with regard to wine. So nobody, nobody drinking old wine is like, man, do you have any new stuff? Preferably like last year, you know, nobody... Nobody says that who is a, a wine drinker, connoisseur, or knows anything about wine at all. All right, so that's what Jesus is saying on the surface. And it, on the surface of it, like, yeah, yeah, I get what he's saying, I get what he's saying, but what does he mean? What does this have to do with fasting or 
the appropriateness of fasting or why his disciples don't fast. Suddenly he's talking about wines and patches and, you know, tailoring, how to transfer wine. Like, what, what are you, what is going on here? And so people have interpreted this all kinds of different ways. And one of the common ways is they latch onto this old and new idea and then they run with it. And so you hear sermons or you read books or uh, hear lectures and it'll say something like, Jesus is coming on the scene and they're like, you're supposed to be fasting, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, ha, you dummies, you're doing old things. You're supposed to be doing new things. Or he says something like, hey, you can't follow the Old Testament stuff if you're going to be following me, the new covenant Messiah. The Old Testament stuff doesn't fit with the New Testament, so if you're going to get with the New Testament, you need to dump the Old Testament. You can't be following the Old Testament and following Jesus at the same time because they don't fit together. If you try to fit Jesus and the Old Testament together, they're going to break. Is this already sounding not correct to you? Jesus said, I came to fulfill the Old Testament, not destroy it. But this is the common interpretation. Oh, Jesus must be saying the old wineskin is the Old Testament, and the the new stuff that he's bringing is his teaching. He's the king. He's coming on the scene. He's going to change things. And I think the the great relevance with a passage like this is what do we do with the Old Testament? Because some people take a passage like this and they're like, oh, Jesus is coming on the scene and saying, hey, dump the old stuff and let's do the new stuff. Have you ever heard somebody say, hey, but that's Old Testament. That's Old Testament. Christians do it all the time. I remember talking with a pastor and we were just talking about worship and singing. And I'm like, oh, I think it's great when people clap if they want to clap or raise their hands. Um, some of you remember when my mom would visit and she'd pull a tambourine out of her. She don't care. She'd pull a tambourine out of her purse. And I was like, hey, Old Testament is full of that stuff. Like the Psalms, about instruments and all this kind of stuff. There's churches that don't allow any instruments because you don't see instruments in the New Testament. I'm like, but they're all over the Old Testament. What is their response? That's the Old Testament. As if, hey, that's irrelevant. You might as well be sacrificing a lamb up here and make this all bloody up here. That's the Old Testament. And then famously, Andy Stanley caught a lot of heat for telling his congregation, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, going so far as to say the, old, the Ten Commandments don't bear relevance to us today. Really. Really. I think many Christians are embarrassed of the Old Testament. They're, they don't know what to do with it. It's got wrath. It's got difficult laws, difficult terrain to study. But it's as if Jesus comes on the scene and he just introduces completely new things. If you read the New Testament carefully, everything Jesus teaches is the Old Testament. But he teaches it rightly and correctly. So I don't think we're supposed to take this passage, which is difficult to understand, first of all, and then second of all, make it into something that completely undoes everything else Jesus teaches about the Old Testament. Jesus is not saying the old stuff is inferior, the old stuff is no good, that more than half of your Bible, meh, don't worry about it. Just, I'm going to introduce something totally new here. Erase the old stuff. It worked for a while. It wasn't dumb. It worked for a while, but now I'm here, and so now you don't need that stuff anymore. 
I think you'll see that that's not what Jesus is saying. All right, so real quick, let's get some context. We dropped into this in the middle of nowhere. It's like starting a movie in the fifth scene, right? So what, what has led up to this? And what has led up to this, uh, you don't have to turn to these passages. I'm going to go through them just in review. The, the Gospel of Luke opens up. He's writing to Theophilus. And the reason why he's writing to Theophilus is so that Theophilus, apparently someone who uh, loves God, that's literally what his name means, to have certainty regarding the things he's been taught. Theophilus, I'm going to write you this gospel so you can be sure about the things that have been taught to you. Someone who's being taught is a disciple. Theophilus is a disciple, and Luke is writing the gospel to help him with his discipleship. And then in chapters 1 through 3, John the baptizer, we say baptizer instead of Baptist, sometimes just to, people might think John started a, a denomination or something, and it's not, he just, he baptized people, right? John the baptizer, he comes on the scene, he makes a way for Jesus, this promised Christ, this promised Messiah, the Son of God who's coming on the scene, he's prepping the way for him, but there's nothing there about deleting the Old Testament. What you see is all that the Old Testament predicted, he's coming on the scene. The Old Testament is coming to fruition not losing its validity. And then in chapter 4, Jesus survives the temptation in the wilderness. Remember that? Fasting for 40 days. And then he starts his public ministry, which is what? Teaching, which includes exercising demons, meaning extracting them, not giving them a workout plan, right? Exorcising, healing people. And then chapter 4 ends with an emphasis on preaching the gospel. So Jesus comes on the scene, All of the Old Testament has been pointing to this Christ that comes on the scene, and he comes on the scene preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel to people. And then in chapter 5, he recruits disciples to to help him in this task of preaching the gospel. He recruits disciples into this proclaiming ministry. He tells the fishermen, you remember that? Hey, drop your nets, follow me. Now you're going to be catching men. And so they leave their fishing stuff behind. They leave their boats. They leave their nets. They leave their equipment, whatever, and they follow Jesus. And he comes on the scene, he purifies the unclean, he makes the unclean clean. He brings life to the paralyzed, and he makes disciples of the worst of sinners. You remember the other person he calls is uh, Levi from the tax booth. Everybody hates this guy. He rips off his own people. And Jesus says, follow me, and he leaves the tax booth just like the fishermen left the, the boats. And they follow him. So all one, chapters 1 through 5 is, is Luke saying, Hey, Theophilus, you want to be a disciple? You want to continue learning the things that you learned about Jesus? Let me tell you the story about how Jesus started discipleship, what it was for, proclaiming the gospel, how he confirmed it by healing and exercising. Demons can't stand in his way. Disease can't stand in his way. Depravity can't stand in his way. Nothing stands in his way. He's proclaiming the gospel because the Old Testament has finally come to fruition. And to follow Jesus means to leave everything behind and follow him. Interestingly, the people that Jesus heals have already lost everything. The paralytic had nothing, man. He's just being carried around on a mat. The unclean person, the, the, the leper was outside of community. He had nothing. And so the people that he ministered to, uh, and they turned around and proclaimed the gospel to other people, had already lost everything, and the people that haven't lost everything, in order to follow Jesus, they're called to drop everything. It's all or nothing, this discipleship thing. All or nothing. And it permeates and pervades your entire life. 
Fishing doesn't matter. Your career doesn't matter. Collecting taxes and ripping people off so you can pad your pockets, that big house that you've secured with that, all the friends and connections you've made with the Romans with that, all of your political power, gone to follow Jesus. You give up everything to follow Jesus, or you turn to Jesus because you've lost everything. But discipleship is recognizing that Jesus is everything and worth everything. He is the total all-subsuming focus of my life. That is discipleship, according to Luke. Now we get to this part of chapter 5, and people don't like that discipleship because it doesn't look like their discipleship. They're working hard to fast, okay? And any of you who've ever tried to just skip one meal, you get these withdrawals, right? And you're like, oh, and every, your co-workers are eating next to you. You're like, oh, why did I commit to this? It's, it's hard to give up food. Your body wants it. Your body craves it. You start getting headaches. Where are the carbs? And they're in this state of, I mean, it's just for one day, goodness, but they do it Tuesday, do it Thursday, the next Tuesday, the next Thursday, the next Tuesday, the next Thursday, and every time they're doing it, they look at Jesus' disciples, and they're, they're doing the opposite, man. They're, they're eating. They're feasting. That doesn't look like discipleship. So this is a question about what should discipleship look like is the point I'm trying to make. That's, that's what's happening here. This isn't about Old Testament, New Testament. Where is that? There's nothing there in the first five chapters about old is bad, new is good, none of that. It's what is good discipleship? What makes good discipleship? And notice, this isn't about Pharisees versus Jesus. We, we love to make the Pharisees these evil villains that walk around with snarling teeth, and just want to put people down. Now, they were, they were bad dudes in many ways. But here, there's no description of them being bad. And in fact, notice what it says in verse 32 there. They said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. So who, who's the main point of contrast? It's not the Pharisees. It's John's disciples. Now, Jesus had nothing but good things to say about John. And the, the crowd is noticing. Actually, in Matthew's gospel, Luke and Mark don't say who asked the question. But in Matthew's gospel, it specifies John's disciples are the ones asking this question. So this isn't evil, nasty Pharisees that want to kill Jesus, though they do. Just going, hey, you're not doing things right. And then Jesus is like, that's because you guys are dumb. It's not that. Because John's disciples do do things right. Guess who their teacher is? John the Baptist, man. John the Baptizer. He's, he's the guy. He's it. Never was a man like him, Jesus said. So we come on the scene, and it's not Pharisees versus Jesus. It's just what, is, what should disciples be doing? It seems like fasting is a good thing, and your guys aren't doing it, and so what's going on with that? It may not even be an attack. It might be just an honest question. I don't understand. Should I not be fasting on Tuesdays and Thursdays then? What's the deal? What is the nature of discipleship? So Jesus tells this parable after the bridegroom thing in order to try to unpack what discipleship is. But here's what Luke has established. I'm going to say it twice if you want to write it down. But here, Luke is establishing what discipleship is. Discipleship is to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus, God's promised answer to the problem of sin and death. To follow Jesus, God's promised answer to the problem of sin and death. 
and proclaim him as God's good news. To proclaim Jesus as God's good news to the captive sinner. I'll say it again. Discipleship, according to Luke, in these first five chapters leading up to our passage, discipleship is to follow Jesus, God's promised answer to the problem of sin and death, and proclaim Jesus as God's good news to the captive sinner. A shorter way to put it would be to just say, to know Jesus as God's answer to sin and to proclaim him as God's answer to sin. To know him, follow him, but it's not just head knowledge, it's living it and showing it and proclaiming it to other people. That's discipleship. Now this is getting in the way because these folks are saying discipleship should include fasting, and you guys aren't doing it. What is going on with that? So here's the first thing we notice right off the bat in verse 33 is that fasting is a good thing, and that makes this a good question. He could have just said, that's a stupid question because fasting is Old Testament, and we're in New Testament times. Done. You don't need wineskins, broken garments. Like, what's all that stuff for? That's Old Testament, and now this is new stuff now. You shouldn't be fasting, actually. Fasting is wrong. Here's why. He doesn't do that. And the reason why he doesn't do that is, first of all, because fasting was prescribed in the Old Testament. One time a year, but it was prescribed, so they understood that fasting was a good thing, at least on Yom Kippur it was a, it was a good thing. And Jesus doesn't say anything about you guys fast too much. You guys fast in front of people. You guys fast the wrong way. He has some things to say about that later, but he doesn't say anything about fasting being bad here. And so he instead leans into a lesson about the appropriateness of discipleship in general. Of course, fasting is the, the main point that they're focusing on, but it's not the ultimate thing that this passage is about. But he doesn't denigrate fasting. He doesn't tell them they shouldn't be fasting. And he doesn't even tell them you guys do it too often. That's just too often, twice a week. That's too much. He doesn't say anything about that. In fact, later... In Matthew 6, he commends fasting and says those who fast the right way for the Lord, instead of people who fast in front of people, oh, uh, they'd skip makeup that day, and they're like, uh, and they're like, why are you so tired? Oh, I haven't eaten in three days. I've been fasting. And they want you to be like, wow, you must be spiritual. No, no, me? No. I do it every week. You know what I mean? And he's like, those people, they get their reward already with people go, oh, Wow. They Facebook it. Fasting today, selfie with the lines under there. And Jesus is saying, look, if you fast more privately so that God is your audience, your reward is in heaven. So what is Jesus doing in Matthew 6? He's not saying fasting is bad. He's saying there's bad ways of doing fasting, but there's a right way to do fasting, the kind that puts a smile on God's face, the kind that secures a reward for you in heaven. That kind of fasting is good fasting. So we know Jesus is not saying fasting is bad. And we just saw in the beginning of Luke, what did Jesus do for 40 days in the wilderness? Fast. Even Jesus is doing fasting. Uh, in Luke chapter 2, he commends Anna, the prophetess. She gets skipped a lot. Sorry, Anna. But, I mean, one of the things that Luke says about her is she fasted. It's, it's, it's commending her, and one of the points of commendation is that she fasted. And when you get to the book of Acts, you see the disciples fasting. So we, we know that fasting is not the, the bad thing here. It's not bad to fast. But the question remains, why aren't 
his disciples doing it then if fasting is a good thing? Well, what you need to understand, like I said before, is that this whole bridegroom thing is, is, the, is the, the controlling image of this whole thing. You can't understand the wineskin stuff unless you understand the bridegroom thing. You can't understand the garment stuff if, unless you understand the bridegroom thing. And to really understand the bridegroom thing is if you read the Old Testament, you see bridegroom stuff a lot. Yahweh says to his people Israel, you're my bride and I'm the groom, and you're always cheating on me. What the heck? You know, <laughs> that's Hosea, that's a lot of the prophets, that's a lot of what you get in the Old Testament, is God saying, hey, you're running around on me, and you're supposed to be my faithful bride, because I'm, I'm the faithful groom. I don't cheat on you. Okay? In the Old Testament, the bridegroom stuff comes up a lot, and it's always Yahweh, God. Now, Jesus has the audacity, the nerve to say, the bridegroom is here, right in front of you. I'm the bridegroom. You hear people say, Jesus never said he was God. That's exactly what they, why do you think they wanted to kill him? If he was like, you know, someone who represents the bridegroom is here, somebody that the bridegroom sent is here, they'd be like, okay, I don't think you're true. I am the bridegroom? The Old Testament never calls the coming Messiah the bridegroom. The bridegroom is always God, Yahweh, the covenant God. Jesus comes on the scene saying, the reason why you don't understand fasting is because you don't understand who fasting is for. And they would go to the Old Testament, yeah, we do. We read Zechariah, we read Isaiah that says fasting is for God. And he's like, right, but you don't know I'm it. I'm him. You should be doing fasting for me. But I'm here, not missing, and that's why my disciples don't do it. That's the logic. It's not that fasting is bad. It's you've got the wrong audience. Your audience is people or a generic Old Testament God that has no Jesus in it, and that's not good either. Your audience is supposed to be God as revealed in the Son, Jesus Christ. That's why your fasting is off. Fasting's great. But if it's not Christ-centered fasting... You're wasting your time. Just eat the calories, man. It's a waste of time if your focus is not Jesus Christ. So what Jesus is doing is he's claiming that fasting makes no sense right now. Then, for him, fasting makes sense for us. Right now, Jesus is saying, right now, while I'm around, fasting doesn't make sense. But in a little while, I'm going to be taken away, and then fasting makes sense again. You'll be mourning me. You'll be wishing that I would show up on my white horse to put down wickedness and take my throne. You're going to wish for that. You're going to long for that, and you're going to fast for that, and that's good, but that's not right now. Right now, I'm here proclaiming the gospel and healing, healing the deaf, healing the blind, healing the, the paralyzed, telling demons where to go. I'm on the scene dealing with sin and death so that you would join me in proclaiming it. That's discipleship. So that when I'm gone, you would fast and pray and lean on me to continue doing it. That's what discipleship is. So he's authoritatively defining fasting as mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. When you're grief-stricken that someone's missing, you've lost someone. In the Old Testament, they did it because they need him to come. And then in the New Testament, they do it because they saw him come and then he's taken away and they need him to come again. 
That's why fasting makes sense. But if it's not focused on Jesus, none of that makes sense. Jesus saying it has to be focused on him because he is the bridegroom of Israel. So fasting is appropriate. It's an appropriate way of longing for God, and it's like you're communicating to God, God, I, I long for you, I long for your son more than I long for breakfast. More than I want that donut. As bad as I would love a burger right now, I need you more. And I'm going to skip this meal and pray and express to you how desperately we need you in this life, in this world, in this community, or on the behalf of someone else who's sick or in trouble. Fasting is appropriate, but it's inappropriate to do that to a kind of a generic God with Jesus missing in the picture. That's not great. So this has nothing to do about what is new versus what is old. Rather, it's about what is absurd versus what's appropriate. I'm running the risk of being a little too technical here, but let's try it. (laughs) I'm going to put a couple slides up. I want you to understand the flow of his argument so that we can understand what he's doing with the wineskins, what he's doing with the garments, okay? Because it is kind of weird. It's a little bit opaque, difficult to understand. And here's the the flow of the argument. I understand it's a little bit small font, but I'm going to walk you through it, okay? You've got four points he's making, okay? And here's what he's saying in the first point. A, one does not do blank. That's all he's saying first. Nobody does this stupid thing, right? This craziness. Nobody does this. And he's going to fill that blank with a couple different things, wineskins thing, the garment thing, okay? You can fill it with whatever, and the logic holds. No one backs the car out of the garage without raising the car garage door first. No one who's sensible prepares a bowl of cereal by pouring the milk first, then the cereal. Right, right? Nobody does this absurd thing. That's what he's starting with. That's A. Then B, because that's nuts. That's, that's absurd. I put it in yellow there, ostensibly, so you can see it. That's crazy, is the second thing he says. So nobody does this thing. The reason why nobody does it is because that's crazy. And the reason why it's crazy, see, is because it leads to some disastrous result. Your whole car garage is broken now. Your back bumper needs to be replaced now. You'd be like, yeah, who who would do that? He's like, exactly, that's my point. You're not supposed to be sitting there packing garage doors in the ancient Near East. It's just common sense. It would just be crazy to not raise the garage door first and then back the car out. It would be unsensible to pour the milk, then all your cereal sitting on top is falling over. As soon as the spoon goes in, more is displaced, right? And now the cereal's all over the table. It's not mixed, whatever. Silly illustration, but the point is the same. Nobody does this because it's absurd to do it, and it's absurd to do it because it leads to disastrous results. And then the last thing he says is, hey, there's a right way to do it. Raise the garage door first, then back the car out of the garage Pour the cereal first, then pour them. Nothing wrong with milk. There's just an appropriate way to pour milk. Nothing wrong with parking in the garage. There's just an appropriate way to back the car out of the garage. There's nothing wrong with fasting. There's just an appropriate way of fasting. There's nothing nothing wrong with new wine. There's an appropriate vessel for new wine. There's nothing wrong with patching a garment. There's an appropriate way to patch a garment. There's nothing wrong with fasting. There's an appropriate way to fast. See? Nothing wrong with the Old Testament. There's an appropriate way to understand the Old Testament. Nothing wrong with the New Testament appropriate way to understand it. But this is not Jesus saying, old stuff is bad, new stuff is good. That's not what he's saying. So on the next slide, I wanted you to see kind of what I just laid out to you. 
No one, here's how he starts, no one uh, fasts as a wedding guest. I should have put fasts. No one fasts as a wedding guest while the bridegroom's there. And then B and C are just implied. Nobody does that, right? And you just think about it, and you're like, yeah, that doesn't make sense. When he shows up, then we eat. When he's not there, we don't eat. So why, you know, he implies it. And then D, there's a right way to do it, which means don't eat while you're waiting for the bridegroom. Bridegroom shows up. Hey, now it's time to eat. That's it. Then he goes into the next one, and he gives us A, B, and C. D is implied. No one fills old wine with new or or the uh, old garment with the new patch. It's absurd. The reason why it's absurd is because both garments are ruined. And I want you to understand that. Even if you wanted to pit old versus new, you've ruined both of them, see? People say, God, Jesus is trying to discard the old thing. Old is bad, new is good. But the point here is you ruined the old garment. You ruined the new garment, but you definitely ruined the old garment. That old wine that's precious, you ruined it by getting it spilled on the ground by putting it in an inappropriate vessel. And that's what he goes to next. You don't fill the old with the new. Why? Because it's absurd to do that. Why is it absurd? Because you spill it everywhere, and now your wineskins are broken. That's stupid. It's crazy. It leads to disaster. And he says there's an appropriate way to do it. Use new wineskins for the new wine. And then he ends with no one prefers new wine to old, and we'll just get to that in a second. So I don't know how helpful that was to you, but it was to me as I kind of broke this apart, and I'm like, okay, I don't think this has anything to do with old, bad, new, good. That, that, that's not what he's doing. What he's saying is there's a dumb way to do stuff and an appropriate way to do stuff. Don't do it the dumb way or you'll lead to disaster. Do it the right way. What he's telling them about their, disciple, their fasting practices is that's going to lead to disaster. Fasting for the wrong person, fasting for the wrong point of worship. It's a worshipful practice. You're not worshiping the one to whom the worship is supposed to be offered. That's absurd. And guess what? That's going to lead to disaster because many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, I fasted in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I prophesied in your name. What's he going to tell them? Depart from me. I never knew you. He doesn't say depart from me. Prophesying is stupid. Depart from me. You know, ministering to the poor was corny. You know, like he, he doesn't undo the works that they did. He just says that the works that they did weren't for me. Why? You didn't even know me. You didn't know me. So can we live lives where we do worshipful things? We, maybe we fast, we pray. Luke incorporates prayers into this, doesn't he? It's not just about fasting. If you look at that first verse, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. It's not just about fasting, but it's about devotional practices, worship. The things that we do that are worshipful to God are not worshipful to God if there's no Jesus in it. There's no Jesus in it. That's the point. The real point here is it is inappropriate to practice any worship outside of a focus directly on Christ. It is inappropriate to practice any worship outside of a focus directly on Christ. I wish I could take more time to just help you understand how pervasive this is. In churches, we don't have to preach Christ, just preach God generally. I'm like, God generally sends people to hell. You don't have to know God generally. You have to know a specific God who sent a specific Messiah who says, I'm the bridegroom. That's what you have to know. That's whom you have to know. 
And so I tell you, if you read Psalm 23, I don't care how much you love it, how much you've memorized it, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And in your mind, when you think of the Lord as shepherd, just a generic God, you might be lost. God has expressed his perfect good shepherd in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So when people say, Christians, supposedly, they say, well, you're supposed to read Psalm 23 sort of generic. Don't put Jesus in there. Jesus is the good shepherd. I don't care what you say, man. Jesus came on the scene and said, do you remember Psalm 23? Guess who the good shepherd is? Me. Well, oh, no, 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 we're not supposed to put him in there. God put him in there. Who else is the good shepherd? If we think we're being shepherded by God and our focus is not directly placed on Jesus Christ, I think we're in trouble and we run the risk of trying to fix garments and we lose both. Trying to pour wineskin and we lost everything. We lost everything and that's, that's the striking part of the image is you broke the wineskins and you lost the wine. You ruined the new garment and you ruined the old garment. So people that want to ignore the Old Testament to follow the New Testament, they've lost everything. It's not like they just lost one half, they lost all of it. They don't understand that Jesus is it, right? You've got, you know, supposed churches out there that follow the Old Testament. Strictly adhering to it, don't understand how Jesus fulfills the picture. That's not good either. It's inappropriate for worshipful practice, fasting, Praying, preaching, singing, serving without a focus on Jesus Christ. I don't think that means every third word out of our mouths has to be the name Jesus. But Jesus has to be the center of our, of our attention. Jesus has to be the, the object of our worship. He's the object of our faith. He's the one in whom we place our faith. We don't close our prayers by saying, in God's generic name we pray, amen. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. And so, yeah, we're praying to the Father as Jesus taught the disciples to do. But the Father wants us to remember, in whose name are you even talking to me right now? And so it's appropriate, even though Scripture doesn't command to end every prayer with, in Jesus' name, I think it's a good practice to end our prayers by saying, in Jesus' name, because we're reminding ourselves, aren't we, that this is not a generic prayer, this isn't a prayer based on my ability. This isn't a prayer based on sort of a generic sense of God's grace, but a specific grace that was secured on the cross. Sometimes we think our focus on Jesus, as long as we mention Jesus the person, the things he did, the good things he did, that's not the focus. The focus is why I need Jesus. And the reason why I need Jesus is because apart from Jesus' priestly ministry, I can't even pray to God. I have no audience with God outside of Jesus Christ's atoning work on the cross, defeating death for me by rising again, by dying for my sins, and it being confirmed by him rising again, ascending to the Father. And I think this encompasses all of devotional practices, spiritual habits, works of faith, disciplines of worship, whatever you want to call it. The things that God calls us to do, we do them unto Christ. You read the opening chapter of Colossians, some of you already understand it. If not, look it up later. You read the opening chapter of Colossians. What is not Christ-centered? Everything is Christ-centered. 
Science is Christ-centered. Creation is Christ-centered. The universe is Christ-centered. Worship is Christ-centered. Your family is Christ-centered. Your, your marriage is Christ-centered. Whether you recognize it or not, he's the center of everything. The point is, do you recognize it? Or do you destroy things in your life because you don't recognize it? That's Jesus' point. When you do something absurd or inappropriate, rather than doing it the appropriate way, it leads to disastrous results. So think of people who engage in prayer often. I pray a lot. I pray a lot. But Jesus isn't the focus. I'm not talking about just saying, in Jesus' name I pray, like a formula. But to really think it's in Jesus' name that I pray this. The, the, the Christ who came and took stripes on my behalf, suffered on my behalf, and told his disciples, you take up a cross now. You suffer now. You bear some stripes now. You follow me. You take up your cross and follow me in the way that I showed you. And that wasn't an easy life. Does that transform my prayer? God, remove this disease from me. In Jesus' name, he's like a power that we invoke. Right? It's like waving a wand. And rather than saying leviosa or something stupid, some Latin phrase from Harry Potter, we just say, in Jesus' name. You know, we just point at something with a wand. That has nothing to do with it. To pray in Jesus' name recognizes, I'm asking you to lift this disease, but I'm not asking you to lift this disease because I don't deserve it. I'm not asking you to lift this disease because if you don't, I'm going to stop worshiping you. I'm asking you to lift this disease knowing I do deserve it. I deserve worse than this disease. But Jesus stood in the gap and he took wrath on my behalf. I know I don't have to suffer this disease in order to please you. I know I don't have to suffer this disease in order to be in a right relationship with you because Jesus took this wrath for me, so I hide in Jesus. He's my refuge from the storm, and this feels like it's part of the storm, God. Would you remove it because I'm in Christ? That's different than I'm a Christian. I said the prayer, and I have rights now. Give me that car. Give me that health. Give me that house. That will lead to disastrous results because your focus isn't Christ. Your focus is still you. And that's why I think they're approaching him like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're doing all this discipleship stuff and you guys aren't. And Jesus is like, hey, if your focus was in the right place, you wouldn't be fasting right now. Because there's one that you're longing for and praying for. You'd recognize, oh, snap, he's right here. He's right next to you and you're still doing it as if he's not there. And I tell you, friends, we still do that today. We do that in churches. We do that in Bible studies. What do I get out of it? What do you have for me today? Hmm. I haven't read the Bible in a while, but I have an issue in my life. Let me extract some bit of wisdom and then put it back to collect dust until I need another. That's not Jesus-focused Bible study. That's problem-focused Bible study. That's my issues-focused Bible study. Like a little toy eight ball that you shake and like give me an answer give me an answer oh and you're like i'm not sure if that was the right answer shake it again shake it again like i don't like that verse keep going to the next one let's let's take the bible is your little eight ball that's not jesus focused bible study even though you're studying the bible see and that's what's so tricky that's what's so off-putting when jesus taught a lot of people on that day are going to say lord i worship you lord i served you lord i prophesied they did all the churchy things but they're out why well, because Jesus is saying it doesn't, it's not about doing the practices. It's about practicing those things with your focus on me. If you practice those things without your focus on me, that's absurd. There's an absurd kind of Christianity 
that you can engage in. And after a while, you realize, man, this Christianity thing's not really working out for me. I know, that's because you signed up thinking it would work out for you. Christianity is not about you. Christian means to follow Christ. And Christ is the all-subsuming center of the entire universe. And until you get that right, all the things that we do that seem worshipful on the outside aren't really worshipful truly. But if you do get that right, it transforms your prayers. Your prayer life becomes powerful instead of moments of constant disappointment because you didn't get what you wanted. You already have what you want if what you want is Christ. And you have all the right things in him. And you let God figure out what that looks like day to day, week to week, month to month. Live another 10 years, live another 10 minutes. That's God's purview. But if it's 10 minutes or 10 years or 10 decades, I want to live those for Christ. The bridegroom I long for. And one day, as in the book of Revelation, we'll enjoy the final wedding feast where wickedness is totally put down and we enjoy him purely and truly for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we do think about the things that distract us, weigh us down, tempt us to worry. We pray that we would bring those at your feet, as Paul tells us in Philippians 4, to take all of these anxieties, cast them before you, because you're near, you're at hand. We know you're not a God who's far off, distant. You don't ignore us. You listen. And you stoop to hear and answer the prayers of your people. Your people that are in covenant with you through Jesus Christ. So we close in the song, thinking of that reality. Thinking of Christ our Savior and all that he bore so that we can have life eternal with you. Help us to sing in gratitude. Help us to sing with focus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand that we'll